Tony, when are we going to get some snow? Me too. I bought my grandson's snowshoes two years ago. Now they're too big. We never used them. They're too small for him now, so it's all your fault. Romans 11, we're going to run the iron over this garment one more time before we move on. And tonight we'll do a Matthew 13, 52 deal. The scribe of the kingdom of heaven takes from the treasure old and new. I'm going to be pulling some Better Call Paul stuff back into this climactic phase of our study of Romans 11. And you might recognize some of that material. So let's take a couple of moments. Silent prep. Father, I think of that verse which says... I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And we are certainly glad to be here in your presence. And we know that the Holy Spirit is present here to illuminate and enlighten our minds. To grant us the eschatological, Christological perspective, which is the salvation of our hearts and minds in these times. We thank you for this privilege and ask that the results will be indeed the manifestation of the messianic livingness that we can participate in, in Christ Jesus. We consider you faithful, Father, who has called us into this fellowship with your Son and with one another. And what a privilege it is, we thank you. So we ask your blessing to reside on this house tonight and upon each person. Grant us the grace to receive what you have for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 11, 1. To reiterate, Paul writes, I ask then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Absolutely not. That's unthinkable, for I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. Now, this is a very dogmatic statement. Whom he previously elected. Or are you unaware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah? Paul now is getting into an engagement with certain Gentile Christians, harboring a prejudice against their Jewish brethren. The assumption, the anti-Semitic assumption, really, authored by the adversary, that God has forsaken Israel. So God has not rejected his people whom he previously elected. Or are you unaware what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Now it's worth noting, as we did in Better Call Paul, as we rounded off that series in Romans 11, that a prophet of God pled with God against Israel in Elijah's case, even as another prophet of God, famously named Jonah, pled against the pagan residents of Nineveh. They both thought they had a case for God to drop the hammer, one on the Jews, one on the Gentiles, but in both cases, God answered with mercy. Mercy toward Israel, mercy toward the pagans in Nineveh, Mercy that he determines to have upon all humanity, and which he already has in the eschatological perspective. Romans 11.32. The point is that even God's spokesmen and spokeswomen, or those who claim at least to speak for God, may occasionally have a grievance with God's mercy, with his universal mercy especially, And especially when they happen to be the ones being hurt by someone or excluded or threatened by some person or group. Many people want to hold on to the doctrine of a post-life or an afterlife hell because they think people that hurt them deserve it. And 
as I said one time, a neighbor came by and he knew I was a preacher. He never talks to me, but he came by and rolled down his window of his truck and he said to me, there's a man that owes me money and he's owed me money for years. Don't you think he ought to go to hell? Well, I said, that's a nice way to strike up a conversation, but I forget what I said, but I was thinking, well, we all should have probably gone to hell, but we're all going to get mercy. So it's a matter of if you're hurt by someone, excluded, threatened, or seriously injured, maybe you want to object against God's mercy for all. This mercy triumphs over judgment because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross by his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. But here's Elijah's case, and Paul wants to present it. He wants to air it before the audience because it echoes their own complaint. Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I was speaking of Israel's history under Ahab the king, who was controlled by his wife Jezebel. There's always a problem when people, when men begin to, they don't lead and they are led, you can, you're going to have a problem. And Ahab did not have the courage to lead. So his wife at this time, Jezebel, who was the sponsor of a idolatrous religion, a phallic cult, took the reins. And he just followed. Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining. I'm a one-man remnant. And they're seeking to kill me too. This is certainly a case against mercy, isn't it? If you compare, as we did in Better Call Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16, Paul spoke of those who killed the prophets. The Lord Jesus even killed the Lord Jesus and are now seeking Paul's life. So he had kind of an identification with Elijah. And Paul then said, but they are those whom the wrath of God has come to the maximum. It did come to them in Christ on the cross. Consider the prophetic utterance of Samuel the prophet in his farewell address to all Israel. And it actually says that he spoke to all Israel. In 1 Samuel 12, 1, he said, Yahweh will not reject his people. Paul then lets this echo very loudly into his masterpiece called Romans 9 through 11. A masterpiece of universal mercy. Yahweh will not reject his people. He uses the word for reject here, A-P-O, A-P-O. T-H-E-O, apotheo. And that happens to be the precise word used in Romans 11, 1 and 2. So Paul is probably thinking of this. It's, all these verses are roiling around in his heart all the time. But he says, Yahweh will not reject his people, said Samuel, because of his great name. Not because of his people's great performance. Because of Yahweh's great name. His name ultimately is Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And because it has pleased the Lord to make you his own people. Deuteronomy 7 talks about God loving them. And this is exactly what brought Israel forth. The superabundance of God's love brought forth Israel. His, the superabundance of his love brought forth Creation in its totality. The superabundance of his love gave his son to redeem all creation diachronically. That, again, this is a key word too this year for us. Diachronic comes from two Greek words, dia plus chronos. So it means throughout time. The work that God does, the salvation that he effects in what we call the eschaton is a salvation that cuts all the way through time, all the way through past time and recovers all things in all of their times. That's the remarkable part about the 
recapitulation, as it's called, anakephaliosis, call it if you wish, apocatastasios, pantone if you want, palingenesia if you want, universal reconciliation if you want, they're all popping in the scriptures. Again, in Psalm 94, Samuel's farewell address is echoed using the same word apotheo for reject, where Psalm 94, 12, make that 14, Yahweh will not reject in the Septuagint translation, it's 93, 14, apotheo, same as in 11, 1 and 2 of Romans, his people or abandon his own inheritance. His people is Laon, L-A-O-N, Laon. And it's the same word used in Romans 10.21. God keeps stretching out his hands all day long to a disobedient and unbelieving people, a defiant and disobedient Laon, but God will not reject his Laon, his people. Paul allows these words then to echo very loudly and resoundingly in his own answer to the rhetorical question. So we see these words, Yahweh will not reject his people from the mouth of Samuel the prophet, the one who anointed David the king, and echoed through the Psalms, echoes down through the centuries, through the lips of the apostle. Yahweh will not reject his people. Only Paul uses a different tense here. He says Yahweh has not rejected his people. Pick any tense you want. God has not. God will not. God is not rejecting his people. I am that I am. Use any tense you will, any tense you want, any verbal tense. He does not forsake his people. God has not rejected his people, has he? His answer, God has not rejected his people. Pretty direct. More fully, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he previously elected. Consider this in connection with Romans 8, 29, which says, as many as God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many siblings. And those whom he predestined, he also called into existence. Many siblings is always an understatement, incidentally, for all humanity. And those whom he predestined, he also called into existence as a new creation. And those he calls into existence as a new creation, he also rectified. And those whom he rectified, he also glorified hear that mark I thought you might first Peter 1 1 and 2 Peter equates those who are foreknown with those who are the elect ones and that's what Paul is exactly saying God does not reject those whom he elects and that's even the word ek lektois God does not reject his elect, electois. And so whom he elects or whom he foreknows is one and the same. Whom he foreknows and whom he elects is the same thing. Whom he elects, he glorifies. God has foreknown and therefore has elected above all Jesus Christ, who even has the title, the elect one. As a representative for all humankind, God elected Jesus Christ and at the cross rejected. He received the rejection of a people that are not his people. In his resurrection, he experienced the election of a people who are the beloved sons of God. And so, ultimately, it has to be Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has elected all of humanity in all of its times, as well as all of created reality, diachronically. So Genesis 1.1 is not really about the beginning only, but it's about the beginning that is the end, and the end that is the beginning. In the beginning is NRK, 
And it means in Christ, in RK. Christ is called RK, the beginning, in Colossians 1.15 and following. He's also called that and calls himself that in Revelation 3.14. So the end game is for God to create everything in heavens and earth in Christ. And that means that the end is the beginning in that sense. We're talking about an eschatological perspective here, not merely an historical one. Elijah lists the historical performance of Israel, and under that historical performance, they deserve, in his mind, judgment. But he does not have, at that point, because he's on the run from Jezebel's commandos, he's very fretful and fearful, he's become self-absorbed, His usual prophetic instinct is now crippled by an curvature in adse. He's become occupied with himself, self-absorbed, and turned in upon himself. So he says, I alone am left, just me. It's all about me. And that's the, the most paralyzing of all things that can happen to the soul of mankind. God has foreknown, however... And elected Jesus Christ and glorified him. On my best days, it's not all about me. And in my best days, it's all about Jesus Christ. So I realize that my election is merely his election that embraces me. And God would be remiss to reject me. Because in rejecting me, he would reject his son. That's what it means to be all about Christ. It's grace. Therefore, God has glorified all of created reality in him. That's a truth that is yet to be universally manifested. When Jesus, as Acts 3 says, whom whom heaven presently retains, comes from there to initiate the universal diachronic transfiguration. Think about it. Universal deals with the spatial aspect diachronic with the temporal aspect, all of created reality in all of its times. And that, again, is, is partly exegeting Acts 3.21, 3.20 and 21. When Jesus Christ, who heaven now retains or contains in one sense, when he appears in the earthly scene, then will be the fulfillment of, of the mystery of God's resolute intention to sum up all things in Christ. The eschatological perspective is what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will install in us this coming year, beginning now, maybe even beginning past Sunday. And it's the only way that we can interpret the parables. The parables are a mystery until we have the eschatological perspective installed. Once we have that, the parables become very bright and enlightened to us in all the other scriptures. Many questions fall by the wayside and are fulfilled with answers, with the eschatological perspective. That's why I call this year Operation Epsilon. There are many reasons for that. This will be the fulfillment, then, of a diachronic transfiguration at the parousia when Christ comes. Words like apocatastasis and anacalatasis Anakephaliosis from Ephesians 1.10, apocatastasis from Acts 3.21 are descriptive of this eschatological event, all-encompassing event. So is the word that Jesus employed, palingenesia, in Matthew 19.28. The word that I choose to use because it indicates the universal and the diachronic impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is instaration, with the root word being staros, or the cross, indicating the universal impact of the cross of Christ. So notice that Samuel, in his farewell address to Israel, said, God will not reject his people. Paul says, God has not rejected his people. Samuel speaks with a future tense, before the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Paul speaks in a past tense after the same people who were killing the prophets killed the righteous one. And he said, God has not forsaken his people. 
Well, you'd assume so because the root of anti-Semitism is that the Jews killed Jesus. They are guilty of deicide. Let's quote Peter who said, you killed the author of life. You murdered him. But God's mercy prevailed for them. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They have no eschatological perspective. They don't know who I am. Father, forgive them. So Paul speaks after the cross and says God has not forsaken his people. So much for the assumption, the triumphal assumption of some Gentile peoples, some political movements that have wrought the worst kind of holocaust on humanity. Anti-Semitism. The author of that is angelic, not human. The author of that is Satan, under whose feet the Lord will cause the Roman saints to trample when he tramples this whole bias. So, even after the Christ event, wherein the hardened part of Israel insisted on the crucifixion of the author of life, God has not rejected his people. What kind of love is this? It's the kind of love that loves its enemies, that is an extraordinary kind of love. It's the kind of love that while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were ungodly, Christ died in behalf of us. It's a strange kind of love. It's a hardly ever seen kind of love. It's a love that can't plead against the people of God. So whether you're Samuel saying God will not or Paul saying God has not or me tonight saying God is not forsaking his people, nor will he ever, nor has he. Any tense will do. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. And that means I will be all that I need to be for you. Choose any tense. God will not. God has not. God is not rejecting his people. Nor is he rejecting. Or has he rejected. Nor is he neglecting or negating any aspect of his creation. His creation came about in the flow of the superabundance of his love. He will never abandon it in its present state of enslavement. He will, and from the E perspective, he has redeemed it. Applying the differentiation of consciousness regarding history versus eschatology. When we apply this to Elijah's lawsuit against Israel, and that's what it is effectively in Romans 11, 2 to 4, before the heavens Supreme Court, we can see that the prophet's accusatory complaint against Israel was based clearly on the historical performance of Israel as a people and not at all on the eschatological performance of God in Christ, which rectifies them in the context of the reconciliation of all things. Of all things, in fact, in the heavens and on earth, through the peace that God made through the blood of the cross of the Son of his love. Colossians 1.13 and 1.20. Consequently, Elijah's judicial complaint... And his accusation had no effect on God. As is made even more clear by God's response in verse 3. Elijah says, make, make that verse 3 and 4. Elijah says, Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining and they are seeking to kill me too. But what was the divine response to him? 
Yahweh says, I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal. Baal, better pronunciation. For God's response, Paul employs this word. We looked at this again in Better Call Paul, but I didn't publish or write out all those. So it's krematismos, C-R-E-M-A-T-I-S-M-O-S. Krematismos. It's like this with the English transliteration. Krematismos. That's an eta, not an epsilon. So krematismos is the word he used. It's a related verb to, the related verb is krematizo. It's used for being warned in a dream. In a Christmas verse, Matthew 2.12 and 2.22, where Joseph was warned in a dream that his, that Jesus was going to be executed or the intention of Herod to kill him to go down to Egypt. It's used to describe the disclosure to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Messiah who has personified salvation of all humanity intimated to him by the Lord. Luke 2.26 and then Luke 2.30-32. It was used to describe the warning God gave to Moses when he was about to complete the tabernacle. Krematizo, God intimated to him quietly. In Hebrews 8.5, rooted in Exodus 25.40, in which God said, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That was very important to him, especially in the construction of a little thing called the mercy seat, where God would be. Krematizo is employed in Hebrews 11.7 with its roots in Genesis 6, 13 to 22. In the case of Noah, who the scripture says was warned, Krematizo, about things not yet seen. So the noun Krematizmos used here speaks specifically of the making known of a divine disclosure, and it signifies the content of a divine oracle. Now, I'm going to do something tonight, a little dialectic with Karl Barth. He said that 7,000 speaks of the infinite mercy of God. I think he's right. Let's say he isn't. Let's make this an airtight case about God's universal mercy. Let us propose, contrary to Barth's assertion that I've quoted twice in the past, that this oracle from God actually indicated a literal number of men, males in Israel at the time of Elijah's accusatory plea. Let's just propose this. What if it is a literal number, a tiny remnant of Israel? If that were the case, then God made known or intimated to Elijah that there were literally 7,000 men who did not love this evil age like Demas did and who did not succumb to the worship of Baal. It's very easy to succumb to it, especially when it involved sexual immorality and it was state sponsored and department of justice enforced DOJ enforced idolatrous religion under Jezebel and King Ahab. What if God was literal? What if he was speaking literal and he said, I got 7,000 men that haven't genuflected at the temple of Baal yet. And that would imply that I'm going to use the 7,000 pivot to turn all of Israel back to me, even historically speaking. And that did happen. Either way, this could not be known to Elijah except by a divine disclosure. So the 7,000 is related to, in that case, first fruits that sanctify the whole batch of dough. That's where Paul's going in Romans. You say, how does he go now from here to if the first fruits are holy, then the the whole batch is holy? What he's saying is, if it is a literal 7,000, the whole of Israel is holy because of the first fruits, the 7,000. In other words, God's going to save the whole as indicated by what he's done in saving the few. So, Any way you slice this, and I can almost hear the argument, 
if not from the visible but the invisible realm, well, Nap, what if Barth is wrong and it is literally 7,000? Okay, that's what I'm saying. Let's say it is. The argument still pertains. The whole direction. It also goes on to say that if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul keeps stacking metaphor on metaphor to show the universality of God's mercy. Romans eleven sixteen, The whole direction of this extraordinarily universalistic masterpiece called Romans 9 through 11, taken as a section, the whole direction of this is toward the salvation of all of Israel. The coming in of the totality of the nations and the rectification of all the human race the pleroma of the Gentiles, Romans 11.25, plus the pas, or all of Israel, in 11.26, equals the human race in toto. Eschatologically speaking, is diachronically speaking, God sums up all of the human race in his salvific mind and plan. He can't do other than this, you see, because he is love. And he cannot... The fact that God is love is always associated with his act on the cross. And the fact that he is love means that he cannot not love. And he cannot not show mercy. Ultimately. He has a thing that we might call anger by some form of metaphor. But even when that's spoken of in Psalm 30 in verse 5, his anger lasts only a minute. But his kessed grace, his covenant fidelity, is all the lifelong, all his lifelong, forever. The existence of a historical remnant then Say it's a literal 7,000. There, there is a possibility that this is the case. The existence of a historical remnant is not the indicator of the ultimate salvation of only a few. It is rather an indication of the final eschatological, Christological salvation of all of Israel, of all of humanity, as well as all of creation, diachronically speaking. Though in the course of time and in the present flow of history, there is a distinction between the saved and the perishing. It's only in history where there's such a distinction as those who are being saved and those who are perishing, only in the historical perspective. In the eschatological perspective, there is the eschaton Adam, Jesus Christ, whose name Yeshua means salvation. So it should by now have been duly noted that the 7,000, whether literal or a symbolic number, either way, that number is not indicative of a tiny remnant that God intends to save finally. Instead, it's representative of the whole of Israel, descendants of Abraham, which God intends to save in the context of his salvation of all of humanity and in turn in the context of his redemption of all of creation diachronically. The God I know would only do that. So what's going to happen is the question that people ask, well, why does some have faith and some do not have faith? Why does God gift some with faith and not others with faith in history? will be answered by the fact that you're looking at it from historical perspective, not from the eschatological perspective where every knee bows and every tongue acknowledges the faithful pledge of allegiance to God. If you look at things from eschatological perspective, you look at history and rejoice at the birth of every child. That means the birth of every child of God in regeneration. And you don't ask, well, why didn't that happen earlier? Or why is he, why, that's like asking, well, a baby was born today. Why wasn't someone who's going to be born in 10 years born today? You see, that's a failure 
of the eschatological perspective. There's no judgment on you for it. It's just that we've got to see from the epsilon perspective first. And you can never separate eschatology from Christology, as I will always say. Christology is the sense in which I'm speaking eschatologically because Jesus is called eschatos Adam, the destiny bearer, the final destiny bearer of all humanity is Yeshua, the Savior, not Adam, who once bore our destiny unto death. So then, Jesus bore the death that Adam bore as a destiny for us. So that now Christ bears a universally life-giving destiny. He is a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, was a living soul prone to curvature in adice, a curvature inside. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit, which means he gives life to all. For in as in Adam all die, because he is the bearer of the destiny of humankind unto death. So in Christ, all will be made alive because he is the bearer of the destiny of humankind unto life. Not any old life, but the life that's already conquered death, the life in which there's never a prospect of death again, a redemption from suffering in which there is never the prospect of suffering again will ultimately be the saving work of God. So then, the 7,000, whether it's a literal or figurative number, is representative of the whole of Israel, that which I would call the eschatological entirety of Israel. Though in the course of time and in the present flow of observable history, there are those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It has nothing to do with hell. It has everything to do with either sharing and participating in the livingness of Christ, which includes participating in his humility. This country was based on the pursuit of happiness, wrong basis. You want to pursue something, pursue humility. Humility can result in true happiness. The pursuit of happiness can only become a frantic search that falls and fails as this nation is learning and will learn a very hard way in the coming years. It's the pursuit of the mark of the high calling, the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ. It should now have been duly noted then that this is representative of God's intention to save all of Israel in the context of the salvation of all humanity within the horizon of the liberation and transfiguration of all of creation in all of its times, something that is vouchsafed, guaranteed, and already really done in the most important sense in the Christ event, which I call the Christo-eschatological sense, it's already done. Behold, I am making everything new. And it is done. That's the historic, that's not the historical perspective. That's the eschatological perspective of the one who is called the high and lofty one who resides in the high and holy place and who inhabits eternity with him also who is of a crushed spirit that being Jesus Christ at his right hand. Isaiah 57, 15, meditate on that verse this year. Isaiah 57, 15. Faith, called the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Think of it. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. I don't see the reconciliation of all the world in Christ, but I believe. We don't need a creedal faith, a creedal belief. 
There are representatives of Christ, at least in name only, who can name the creed left and right and may even adhere to the creedal beliefs who then go on to molest children as a profession. And the heart and root of that is in a little section of Rome, same city Paul wrote to. Creedal belief in a list of traditional Christian facts, even if they're the facts of the gospel, is not what God is calling for today. He's calling for an absolute confidence that lays hold of the eschatological perspective that's related to the astounding implications of Christ's death, not just the fact of his death, but the astounding implication of his death and resurrection, which leads to the diachronic, universal transfiguration of all reality, created reality, that will be taken up into him So that God is all in all. Even God is transformed. By his. Being all in all. By his union with created reality. After all God became flesh. So God was transformed in the incarnation. By taking to himself and actually becoming. And assuming created reality in his uncreated self. Now then, that's not mystical, that's reality. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen, in a very real way, lays hold of hope for things as a present reality. So that we could say that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The present realization of those hoped for things in some measure. And faith lays hold of unseen things as seen. Because faith has the eschatological perspective. Operation Epsilon. What is needed is not a mere creedal belief that confesses the traditional historical facts of the gospel. What is needed is a dynamic faith that lays hold of the astounding eschatological implications of the gospel. These are the life-transforming truths, not the facts of the traditional gospel, though they're true and infinitely so. So look at Romans 11.6. Well, start with verse 5, which I don't have written in my notes, but I know. But even now there exists a remnant by the election of grace. Even now, in Paul's time, he's speaking now, not of now, our time, although it's still true in our time, but in his own time. There existed as there did in Elijah's time. This is an argument for a numerical number, by the way. As there was a remnant in Elijah's time which was indicative of what? The entire salvation of Israel. Even so, Paul says, in our own time, he realizes that in the proclamation of the gospel, some who descended from Abraham and were of various tribes like himself, including himself, had faith elicited in them at the hearing of the gospel and became part of a remnant according to grace. But in verse 6, he says, now if it is by grace... And this is a fulfilled condition, and it is, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be no longer grace. That's the best way I can see to state the absolute opposite of something. Grace would no longer be grace if a work is involved at all. If any human activity is involved, then grace is no more grace. If Human believing is even involved. Grace is no more grace. What then, he says? He goes all the way back. We're firing an exegetical arrow now backwards. Keep firing arrows backwards and forwards. You can interpret Romans pretty well. Nobody will get it all the way straight. 
until we see him face to face. He says, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for. Didn't he already tell us that? A few weeks ago, we read about it in Romans 9, 30 to 33. Israel, by pursuing righteousness by works, didn't find what it was looking for. But the elect did find it. In other words, there's a group of people, which we call from Israel, that did find it the same way a whole bunch of Gentiles did find it. Righteousness by grace. The rest, he says, meaning Israel, were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Who did that? God did that. The rest, the greater part, were temporarily hardened. Now, Paul will presently explain. We've seen this in Better Call Paul. I'm calling it forth again, running the iron over the garment one more time so that it will be wearable. Paul will presently explain that this hardening was in Israel in part. Please notice, in part. And that it was only temporary. He uses the word until the pagan pleroma comes in. The fullness of the nations. All the nations comes in. And he's not using a historical thing where it's like, okay, all the nations are saved now. Then all Israel will be saved. No, he's talking eschatologically speaking. He's talking about a universal salvation. You see that from an eschatological perspective. So debate all day long with your friends about a doctrine of universal salvation versus a doctrine of partial salvation. You will get nowhere because it isn't a matter of a battle of doctrines. It's a matter of where you're standing from and what standpoint you're viewing reality from. If it's the eschatological perspective, there's no argument. It's universal and diachronic. And it's been accomplished at the cross when Jesus said to Telestai, and when God from the throne said, Gegonan, done. But if you're not from that perspective, you're going to see the parables and you're going to see the scriptures chopping up humanity into two parts, throwing away half of it and keeping half. Which makes God a failure and his expeditions into this world a partial failure. He gets to save some. Maybe even a lot. Those are not the implications of the gospel, though. Paul will presently explain throughout Romans 11 to its climax in 1136 that this hardening was in Israel in part and that it was only temporary until the what I called then the pagan pleroma or the fullness of all the nations comes in to true Israel through the always open gates of the new Jerusalem to bring in the metaphor from Revelation twenty one twenty six, And so, or as we're learning in Romans eleven twenty six, without further ado, all Israel will be saved. The point is that God saves all of Israel, but he's hardened part of it now because he's letting all the Gentiles come in. The whole point is a universal salvation from an eschatological perspective. All Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. All of this reveals an irresistible, apocalyptic invasion of God's grace in the form of two divine expeditions into this evil age. The first of which ended with the death by crucifixion and the glorious resurrection and elevation of the Son of God. The second expedition, which is going on, is an extension of the first, where Christ in the flesh is worshipped as God and as the only mediator between God and man, but Christ, the spirit, the spirit of Christ, is still enacting that salvific work in people, the life-giving spirit. The second expedition, what's going on in the present time, when the effects of that death and resurrection are impacting a remnant according to the election of grace, that remnant becomes a prolepsis, a preview, a forecast of the apocatastasios pantone, the universal restoration, and of the anakephaliosis, the recapitulation of all things in the glorious Messiah. Of this, now I'm going to appeal in closing to two men, Kosman and Keck. It sounds like a law firm. Kosman and Keck. 
Ernst Kasemann, one of Moltmann's fellow prisoners and literally fellow prisoners and mentors, and Leander Keck, Kasemann and Keck, calling them the lawyers against that terrible accusatory plea of Elijah. But let's look at this first. Of this remnant, Kazaman wrote the following, and he wrote it rightly in my view. Quote, there is perceived in the remnant. Notice the word perceived. There is perceived in the remnant the beginning of an encompassing eschatological event which finally embraces all Israel. Yea, Kazaman. Or as we would say it in Vermont without knowing any German accents or pronunciation, Caseman. Again, he says, there is perceived in the remnant the beginning of an encompassing eschatological event, Operation Epsilon, eschatological event, E, which embraces E, all Israel. If the remnant is elected by grace, this is my argument, If the remnant is elected by grace and not works, then for grace to be grace, it has to be unconditional. But that's not all. If it is by works, then grace is no more unconditional and thus it's no longer grace. But there's more. Such a thing is impossible and unthinkable. But because of the remnant, is elected by unconditional grace where no contingency is expected on the part of the elect, then one can anticipate that grace being to all human beings because it's not on the basis of works. Even if we make faith a work, it is on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, if the works of the ungodly is out of the picture in election, then nobody can be saved on the basis of works because all are ungodly, except for the righteous one. No matter how good those works are, even if they're heroic and involve martyrdom, even if I give my body to be burned or to be martyred, Profits me nothing. I have not love. And no one can be finally condemned on the basis of evil works, no matter how evil, on the other hand. If it's grace, even if those works involve the murder of the only righteous one, the only blessed one who became cursed for us the only righteous one who became sin for us. Why are those verses usually skipped over or never referenced at all, ever? Fleming Rutledge said in all her years in the Episcopal Church, she never heard a sermon on Romans 11.32. Never. She said it's her goal to preach thousands of them now. Why don't they talk about this? They reiterate the traditional facts of the gospel, they think. Then they warp those into something that it isn't. And it's become the focus of evil in this evil age. And you wonder why. In fact, I'm wondering why more people do not flood out of places like that. Come out of her, my people, doesn't apply Exactly, because that was an application to Jerusalem just preceding A.D. 70. But I think it applies to a lot of things that people call churches that are supposed to be the exclusive club for people to belong to if they're baptized or fulfill certain sacramental rites, and then you can, you're in. Yeah, you're in on the ship of salvation. Yeah, right. You're in on the ship of fools. Now you say that's judgmental. Okay. Let's continue. 
This does not take away from the law of sowing and reaping, a historical law. It's a harvest of misery, and time can be reaped by the flesh, by sowing to the flesh, by agreeing to the control of the superhuman control of the flesh. We reap a harvest of misery in this age. It ends at death. It doesn't continue into the eternal state. But there's also sowing to the spirit. A harvest that doesn't end at death, but goes on into the life after death. There are consequences of actions. But the salvific plan of God is ultimately, universally salvific. If that's not true, then the Messiah's name isn't Jesus. All that needs to be set right will be set right, but listen carefully. Not only will everything be all right, speaking strictly from the eschatological viewpoint, everything is already all right. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself behind the visible horror of the Calvary incident. We don't see that in the traditional facts of the gospel. We see that in the declaration of the word. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself behind the visible horror of the Calvary incident. And so the world has been reconciled to God. If God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then the world has been reconciled to God. That's an eschatological reality. My faith lays hold of that. Of course Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins. Of course he was buried and on the third day raised from the dead. God isn't after creedal belief, however. He's after the kind of absolute, unqualified, confident assurance of things hoped for and of things not seen being reckoned on. And that doesn't mean unrealistically that everything's all right in history. It isn't. It's terrible. This age is an evil age. But my faith lays hold of an eschatological perspective. I can see why martyrs died happily now. Not saying I would. But I can see what, once they grasp this reality, I can see that no amount of torture or pain could invalidate that faith at all. And I'm not saying I'm there. In fact, I'd rather just die in my sleep, but who knows what God has for us. This is a present eschatological reality that God has reconciled the world to his son, not imputing their trespasses to them. This is a present reality in the eternity that God inhabits. But this is a yet-to-be-publicly-manifested reality within visible history. Within visible history. So in closing, the remnant that existed in Paul's day, as one existed in Elijah's day, as one exists in our day, is not an indicator of a tiny percentage of Israelis who are destined to be saved in the course of history but indicating rather the salvation of all of Israel, which already occurred in the Christ event to be fully and universally manifested when he comes in glory. This remnant exists then and has its being by grace and grace is uncontingent by its very nature of uncontingency. It has to be universal. Otherwise God would be shown to be unjust. You say, what about the justice of God? Exactly. God is just to, by grace, justify all because of the obedience of his son. God would be unjust if he sent anyone to a Christless hell. That would be injustice on the part of God. So why would you hold to a doctrine that blasphemously asserts that God is unjust? And the reason why, and I'll answer why you hold to that doctrine, 
It's not because you're evil or bad or sinful particularly. It's because you don't have Operation Epsilon going on by the Holy Spirit to show you the eschatological perspective. So I'm with you. I, I was there a very short time ago. The historical remnant, and this is my principle, the historical remnant is indicative of the eschatological entirety. The historical part called a remnant by grace is indicative of the eschatological entirety. By exegetical archery, then we can fire an arrow from here forward to 1126 again. And so all Israel will be saved. Another arrow can be fired to Romans 1132, where God shows mercy to all and still another to 1136, where all things are said to return to him. All things, all created reality. All of Israel is saved in the context of all the nations also being saved in the context of all humanity being saved within the horizon of all created reality being redeemed diachronically throughout all times and seasons. That is creational epics and historical eras. Let me say that again. That's what I would put if I wrote a theology book. I would say all of Israel is saved in the context of all the nations also being saved in the context of all humanity being saved within the horizon of all created reality being redeemed diachronically throughout all times and seasons or all creational epics and historical eras. That would be my thesis in front of a chapter. As is Paul's custom, then he stacks and stockpiles scriptural evidence for Israel's partial and temporary condition. Let's look at this. I'm not going to be here tomorrow night, so let's go a little bit longer, even though you're taping your favorite singing show or something. Romans 11:8. Just as it stands written, God has given them, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, even to this day. Moreover, David says, let their table become a snare and a net and a trap and a means of punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be continuously bent over. This daughter of Abraham, Jesus said, has been jackknifed, bent over by Satan for 18 years, not forever, She's bent over only to see the earthly perspective for 18 years. No more now, though. She just met me. She stands straight. Israel isn't bent over forever just until they meet Jesus. That's the point, and I'm summarizing. And so here's Keck, Leander F. Keck. He, takes, he follows this, and we did this in Better Call Paul. It's worth repetition. He says, translating diapantos as forever, and that's what all tra- translations, the New Revised Standard does it, the New International Version of the Bible does it, the New American Standard Bible, the New Jerusalem Bible, all translated this when it says they shall let, their, let them be bent over continuously, bent over continuously from Psalm 69, 22, and 23 the Septuagint of 68, 23, and 24, translating that word, that phrase, diapantos, forever, instead of continuously, implies that God's action in Paul's time continues endlessly in the future, an inference that has legitimated the pernicious notion, pernicious means evil, notion that Jews are perpetually suffering because they did not become Christians. But Paul goes on to argue that the plight of the currently hardened part of Israel has not caused God to annul the whole people's election. Rather, in the future, God will annul the present unbelief of the hardened part. So the whole people will be saved. Kazaman and Keck, they got the eschatological perspective. Operation Epsilon was working in them. Keck expresses eloquently, oh, two more E's, expresses eloquently, that the present historical remnant that exists by God's uncontingent grace 
is a prolepsis of all Israel being saved by and having its existence in that grace. This reveals that God's chesed, as it's called, loving kindness or covenant grace, is everlasting. And that on the other hand, his wrath, if you want to call it that, is only for a minute. Even my dad's wrath was longer than a minute. My earthly father's wrath lasted sometimes for many days. God's only lasts for a minute. It lasted long enough for Christ to be made sin for us and we to be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Father. We are like that daughter of Abraham, an Israeli woman. We were in the condition of being jackknifed like an 18-wheeler on the road. And yet, we confronted Jesus Christ. Our bent-over condition like that of Israel is not forever, even though it had been continuous for some time. It's all over now because we met Christus Medicus, Christ the physician. We met Christus Victor, Christ the winner, the victor over death and sin and the flesh. We met Christus Faber, the one who says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity that we've taken.